Morning. Enjoying the heat. Like I said before, I will never complain about warm weather. Why? Because I hate cold weather. It hates me, and I hate it. It's a mutual hate. A couple of things I want to mention to you, and then we will get started. This Saturday is our monthly help day at the Bartlett campus. And again, if you've never participated in that, I was sharing with some folks early this morning, if you don't do anything but just go and watch, you will be blessed just to see what goes on. It's this Saturday, anytime we'll start loading stuff, setting up at 8, wraps up around noon, we've got clothing upstairs, we've got food in the gym, and we've got a lot of setup and taking down, particularly in the gym, but I know Chuck and Janet would appreciate your help upstairs, it gets kind of crazy up there, all those people trying to shop at the same time, and so if you could help upstairs, get clothes out to the people you can help downstairs. If you don't do anything again but come push a basket or come stand in the gym, put food in someone's basket, uh, you will be blessed. So if you've never done it, if you have done it, obviously, uh, you know the blessing. And uh, we need as many bodies as we can, usually in the summer, particularly if it's going to be hot, which it looks like it will be. Uh, July is usually hot in Memphis, Randy. At the, we're telling you, that college degree comes in handy on a regular basis. I had to straighten out my granddaughter this week. Anyway, that's this Saturday. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. I'm like, these guys won't have to stand up forever. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Steve and Chris will give you one if you need it. And we'll be, we'll be in Acts chapter 6. Sitting on the front row. I look about halfway through. You just need to jump, run down here and say, I can't stand it anymore. i got to get saved. All right, good. We'll deal with that later. Um, I forgot what I was talking about. It's your fault, Darren. Somebody straighten me out. About what? I have no idea. Oh, yeah. Anyway. I don't, it doesn't matter. Let's forget all that. Okay. We have in our house this uh, satanic thing called an exercise bike. <laughs> exercise bike. And I don't know, four or five years ago, or maybe longer now, ten years ago, whenever uh, Mary, was, Mary was putting it together. Randy don't, Randy don't put things together. We've been married 45 years. Even when our kids were getting toy boxes, uh, Mary was putting them together. Now if it's complicated, my son-in-law Ryan comes over and puts it together. But anyway, Mary was putting the exercise bike together and ended up getting a concussion as a result. Something snapped, hit her in the head, and we had to take her to the hospital. And I knew then we shouldn't have the thing. It, that I think it should be on the curb. Then if anybody wants to come by and exercise at the curb, they're welcome to do so. I, I th- I, that's more than fair. But she didn't want to put it on the curb. She wants to keep it in the bedroom. So every now and then, we hang our clothes on it, you know, when your towel's not dry, you lay it on the exercise bike, because I ain't going to bike on it, so I might as well use it for something. So I lay out my clothes on it, whatever. So yesterday, uh, we had our, uh, our little four-year-old granddaughter with us this weekend, and, and uh, I'm in my, I have a little office at my house where I do my studying, and I'm sitting in my office, uh, I don't know what I was doing, but I don't think it involved studying the Bible, I think I was... Uh, listening to music. Anyway, I'm sitting in my office looking at something, and somebody was texting me, and Chris Ellison was sending me some emails about some stuff. He's in Atlanta, and someone else was texting me named Mary. This other person was named Mary. She she was texting me about something, and then I get a text on my phone that says, I broke my toe from Mary, and I thought, I texted her back, and I goes, what does that have to do with what we're, she said, are you going to come, and then the next text is, you need to come check on me, and I said, where, are you in the morgue? 
Well, it wasn't the Mary who was texting me. It was my Mary. I'm in the other room, but she's texting me. I broke my toe, and I'm texting this other Mary going, what does that got to do with what we're talking about? And then finally my phone rings, and she calls me and says, what are you talking about? I've broken my toe. Get in here. And then I realize, oh, it's the other Mary. It's the important Mary. She look all right back there? It's the most important Mary. So I go in there, and sure enough, she's broken her toe on the exercise bike. Not riding it. Getting out of bed, and you know how you will kick something when you get out of bed? She kicked the exercise bike, and it didn't move. It weighs about 700 pounds and uh, broke her toe. So I think the things are satanic and should be on the curb. Y'all pray that Mary comes to that same understanding. All right, Saturday, if you can make it, help day. One other thing I do want to mention to you, and then we'll get started, Acts chapter 6. When you came in today or in the black boxes, you come in on the the table out in the lobby, you'll see these things that connect cards. For those of you who, this is your church home, you realize what we use a connect card for if you've got to change an address, information, you want to write a comment on the sermon, Randy's driving me crazy, tell him to uh, shut up, whatever you want to write. Just write it on there, and then uh, uh, prayer requests, things, we, we pray over those. We pass them on to the appropriate people. If you're interested in uh, information about something, that's what the Connect cards are for. If you're visiting with us and you'd like a record of that, you put it on the Connect card and drop it in the black box when you leave, and uh, we'll have two guys with uh, fedoras and suits show up at your house this afternoon. Anyway, we'll leave that alone. All right, turn to Acts chapter 6. <laughs> Tough crowds. Acts chapter 6. I did have to straighten my daughter out. I mean, my granddaughter. I'll tell you that right quick because she likes to be straightened out. You remember how IHOP had changed their name to IHOB? And I told her when that happened, that would not be permanent. They would be doing what? Changing it back to IHOP as a marketing ploy, and that happened. So I had to straighten her out and say, see, Grandy is always, always right. Humble. (laughs) Always right and always humble. Acts chapter 6, if you will turn there, verse 14, is verse 11, excuse me, is where we're going to jump in today. Take your hand out and look at it as we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts about the mandate on our lives as believers to fulfill the Great Commission. Calling this your kingdom come and the Great Commission continues. And we're now looking at, and it's very important, we'll keep doing this every time as we change shift gears in the book of Acts. Always remember that Acts is a book of history. It's always important when you study the Bible to determine what type of literature am I reading. For example, if you're reading in the book of Psalms, or that is poetry. That was written to be chanted. It was their hymn book. They sang it, they chanted it, they memorized it. It's always easier to memorize things that's set to music. For example, you think about your favorite, when you hear your favorite song come on the radio, you immediately know the words. Or it doesn't have to be your favorite, just some song you like when you were a kid that it'll come on and, and you'll know the words because it's easy. music we just memorize easily that way. So that's what Psalms is. It's a lot of poetry. So you have to understand when I'm reading poetic language, it was meant to be metaphorical or whatever it might be. If you're, if you're reading an epistle like Galatians or Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul, well, it's a doctrinal epistle, a letter written to those churches to lay out certain principles about living out the life in Christ, the Christian life. When you're studying Acts, not only are you <laughs> getting biblical principles and being taught 
things that God wants you to know and to apply to your life and then live it out, but also you, you are studying and reading history. So it's important to understand, for example, in my, my 930 class, we're studying 1 Samuel. We will eventually get into the life of David. But as we're studying 1 Samuel, we're looking at the life of Samuel now as a deliverer or a judge at the end of that period of time in history. What exactly was going on when Samuel comes on the scene? It's really important. And even if you don't believe the Bible, that history occurred. And so you can go back and look at how the Bible fits into that history, and then you could see that it is true and that God doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't leave anything out. So when you get to the book of Acts, it's always important to learn what's going on, to study the word, and then apply it. You always study the Bible for application. God, what do you want me to do with what I've just studied and learned? Hopefully you observe it, you interpret it, then you apply it. That's how you study the Bible, to take it and do something with it. God doesn't want you to just read it to say, I read it. He wants it to change you. It's the living word of God. and wants it to motivate you to then go out and do something. This particular series as we're looking at is to go out, and really everything in the life of Christian, is we are to fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make learner followers or disciples of Jesus the Christ, our Savior. It is the job of the church. That's why we, those of us who are leaders in the church, elders, pastors, teachers, it's our job to equip the saints, that you, for the work of ministry. Because you could get, Jesus himself said it, you can do greater things because you're going to be in more places. It's just logical. And God, if anything, God is a God of order and logic. So he wants us to go all the many places that we will go and fulfill the Great Commission. So as we're studying Acts, we're looking at the first century church. The history of the beginning of the church, the body of Jesus Christ that began with Jesus' ascension and then Pentecost, and it will continue, we're in it right now, the church age, until Jesus comes back at the second advent, at the second coming when, he, when it's all wrapped up and you have the final judgment and, and, and all of those things, Armageddon, on and on, when Jesus comes back, the end of the church age. So in the interim, also called in the Bible, the last days, that's where we are. We've been there for 2,000 plus years. We may be there another 2,000. No one knows for sure. What we do know is that's where we are. And so one of the things I say to you on a regular basis is never question what God has for you. Why did God have me born in 1954? And why did he have you born in 2005 or whenever it might be, 1975, or whenever you were born, God doesn't make mistakes. He knew what his plan was for your life prior to creating the universe. He sees everything simultaneously. So prior to creating the universe, he saw us sitting here knowing we were going to study his word, Acts, knowing he had stuff for us to do. That's the beauty of the theme of the entire Bible is Habakkuk 2.4 which says the righteous, and it doesn't mean those who are really good people. It means those who are God's children, born again. The righteous shall live by faith. And faith is not a blind leap in the dark saying, whoa, I hope it all works out. Faith is trusting the God who has proven himself to be trustworthy, the creator of the universe, the our savior, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, great I am. All the different names of the Lord in Scripture, Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, on and on. That he's all those things simultaneously. And so he says to us, I've proven myself. 
Not just to you, not just in your life, but throughout history. Now trust me, the righteous shall live by faith. Go out into all the world, it's a long way of getting back to our text, and make disciples of me. Learner followers. That's why I love, like earlier, watching a video that I think Grace Jennings put that together, of the kids at camp. I love those kind of things. See, people like our, our elder Mike is out there, and you've got John Everson is out there, and Rhiannon, and all the adults, and, and even the two girls are up here singing this morning. They were both out there, and, and I, you know, I went up to spend a few hours, and just I love to just watch them interact with those kids because you never know how God's going to use the fact you spent that week with those kids. This morning, today, I went where every good church person should go on Sunday morning. I went to the donut shop. If you're, if you're born again, you have to go to the donut. Apparently, all of, everybody in the because the line was out the door. I was getting donuts for what, what you're eating out in the lobby. I had to go pick those up this morning with Jerry Winemiller. So I did that. Jerry's out of town, so I said, I'll get your donuts for you. I walk into the donut shop, and this happens to me two or three times every week. I look to my left. There's a young man the exact same age as my son, 31, 30-ish, 31. And I've known him basically his whole life. He was there with his wife, his two kids, and another family. They were just in there eating donuts and hanging out. But I could tell by the way he looked, he wasn't going to church this morning. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to church every Sunday. Not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it's very common for that generation to just say, I don't need this. I don't need it. He's a good guy. I'm sure he loves, he, matter of fact, he lives about five houses from me. Good guy. Mary and I, Friday we were in Kroger, and I ran into a lady that I've known for years. Know where they are this weekend? And again, there's nothing wrong with it. They're at the lake. I'd like to be at the lake. But I'm not saying just because I'm here, I'm better than they are. What I'm saying is they're at the lake every single weekend. And Jesus, even though they're good people, there's no priority there. You understand it? It's not just we go to church. Jesus is our Savior. He is our God. He is our Lord. He is our life. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's my favorite verse in the Bible because I think it says it all. So what's going on here when you get to Acts chapter 6? You'll notice on your handout, we're we're talking about Stephen. Stephen, historically now, moment of history, is the first martyr of this new thing that will be called, is called the church, the body of Jesus Christ. His followers, now they're at Jerusalem, we talked about this, I'm going to go back and redo all that, they're at Jerusalem, Jesus had told them, I want you to start in Jerusalem, I want you to go out, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. They did not want to. They were Jewish. Peter is their leader while they're at Jerusalem. What we get to in Acts chapter 6, where we are, you're about to see a turning point in history. And in the history of the early church. But also just human history. Because Stephen's martyrdom is the catapult that sends the church out. To take it beyond Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. We talked about 
they didn't want to do that. They hated Samaritans. And to the ends of the earth, the Great Commission, what Jesus told them to do. That's about to happen. And it's going to happen as a result of them being persecuted. They had it real easy. And things that, they didn't have it real easy. Let me back up on that. They were being persecuted at Jerusalem, but nothing to the extent of what they're about to see. And great persecution comes on them, and they're scattered. And as they go, what do they take with them? The good news of Jesus, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's the one who could change your life. So we began last week to look at Stephen. If you look at number one on your handout, and then we'll, we'll finish, we'll move into number two. We saw where Stephen was. Chapter six, look at verse eight. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose from what some from the synagogue of the freedmen, these people come up. They're going to, we talked about this last week, so we're not going to go over all this again. They decide they're going to debate Stephen. This tremendous number of, of uh, experts in the law. Stephen is this incredibly bright, intelligent young man that God has given a gift, not only of doing the signs and wonders through the Holy Spirit, but also a great orator and a great defender of the faith. And so we asked the question last week, why then does God let him be killed? Seems like God said, take one of these other guys. Why Stephen? It doesn't make sense from our point of view. It does not make sense. But God had bigger things in mind. God never makes mistakes. He never wastes the pain. Talked about that last week. So what God is saying is I got something I'm going to do. And this is going to be, as we said a moment ago, the catapult to send them out. So get to verse 11. They can't win the debate with Stephen. That's where we left off last week. So they can't win the debate. Then now what they do is change the tactics. If you've ever been in debate, if you can't win a debate, what do you do? Based on facts and, the argu- and your argument, what do you do if you can't win the debate? You attack the person you're debating, right? You're ugly and your mom addresses you poorly. You attack the person you're debating. So look at verse 11. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. These are, again, leaders in the Jewish community in the Sanhedrin. Verse 10, I want to read verse 10 again. They were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. They could not out-debate him. They could not win the argument. Stephen was speaking truth. So they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, seized him, and brought him to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. They set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. This holy place would be the temple. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us, or the law. So unable to win the debate, they change their tactics. The first thing they do in verse 11 is they literally recruit people to lie about Stephen. They recruit false witnesses, and they accuse Stephen of blasphemy, which, by the way, if you're accused of blasphemy as a Jew, it's a death sentence if you're convicted of that. They accuse Stephen of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. So it says, verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they seize him, and they take him to the Sanhedrin and accuse him of this blasphemy. Now, they're stirring up everybody against Stephen. 
I want to make sure you see this, even though I know you know it, as we walk through this. Because it's a beautiful picture of God reminding us of something. When they brought Jesus, when they arrested Jesus and they brought him, and were accusing him of blasphemy, how did they present their case? They went out and did what? Hired people to do what? Lie about Jesus. You see that? The exact same thing is happening to Stephen, and it will be repeated. So they're doing the same thing they did with Stephen. So verse 14, they twist and they lie about Stephen's words and about the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. What did he say he would destroy? What did they say? He said, he said, destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. And John goes out of his way in the gospel to say by that he meant what? His body. Destroy this temple, not the temple, not Herod's temple, not Zerubbabel's temple. It was called Herod's temple by then. Jesus never said that. What he said was, destroy this body, predicting his own resurrection from the dead. Now notice verse 15, the countenance of Stephen, how glorious it is. Verse 15. All who sat in the council of the Sanhedrin, looking steadfastly at him, they're all staring at Stephen. They saw his face as the face of an angel. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ultimate Supreme Court. And we've talked about this before, but we're not going to go back again and do it. Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. So they're from, they're not from, he's not from Jerusalem. He, the Hellenistic Jews, we talked about, they came in from outside at Pentecost, at Passover, and they've gotten saved, and they've stayed in, in the, the church, some have. And we saw the issue earlier with the Hellenistic widows. So Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew from outside the area. Those sitting on the Sanhedrin in judgment of him are Hebrews. Not Hellenistic Jews, but Hebrew Jews. They live in Jerusalem and in that area. And they're the ones that are staring steadfast. They're gazing at him. They are transfixed on this man. They've heard him defend Jesus as the Messiah. And they realize they don't have an answer for that. So now they're doing the exact same thing they've done with Jesus, was to lie about his words, twist his words to accuse him of blasphemy about God and the temple and Moses. So they're looking at him and trying to figure out a way to convict him. I love this picture because God is about to do a couple of miraculous things and he does one here. As they're staring at Stephen, transfixed on, we have to get rid of this guy. Just like they did with Jesus, what do they see? They see his face or his countenance like that of an angel. In Greek, what it means is fearless and confident and sincere. In other words, what they saw when they looked at Stephen is, we might kill this guy, but he doesn't care. He knows he's speaking the truth. He's confident that what he believes is correct. And he's fearless. Before the Sanhedrin, we don't have any way to threaten him. Because he doesn't care if he dies. And they see the face of an angel. In the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, it means someone with special wisdom, majesty, and glory. The only other person it was really said about, that he's had a face like that of God, was Moses. When he came down from where? Sinai. He'd been up there 40 days with God, getting God's law, and he came down and said his face glowed. That's the, the picture the idea. Only other man to call the, called the reflection of the face of God. 
which by, by the way is ironic. God is teaching us something here. They're accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses. And they look at Stephen and whose face do they see? One like Moses. The one they're accusing him of blaspheming and Moses God, Moses law. All the things with the exception of the temple that they're accusing him of blaspheming. Stephen, they see it and in their hearts. We will see later a number of them know that Stephen is correct, but it's all about politics for them. It's all about power. It's all about authority. God's message to the Sanhedrin at this point, they're accusing Stephen of blasphemy. What's God's message to them? There are blasphemers in this room, but it's not Stephen. Who is it? It's these Jewish leaders sitting in judgment of Stephen, and Stephen is the one in the room who is glorifying God. They're blaspheming God. We'll see more of that as we walk through. So let's look at Stephen's defense. This is absolutely incredible. Obviously, we're not going to cover all of it today, but I want to begin to look at it. Stephen's defense, remember, he's on, this, basically on trial before the Sanhedrin, accused of blasphemy. What you see in chapter 7, as you get into it, this is the longest address or sermon in the entire book of Acts. See, the life of Paul and all that goes on, the longest address in the book of Acts is right here. Very important. Remember, this is a critical moment in the history of the church. They're about to shift gears and to go into all the world. It's going to set the stage for that. And the content of Stephen's address, he's going to refute their blasphemy charges against him. He's going to review the history of Israel. He's going to recite their leaders, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses specifically, and reveal the sins of the Sanhedrin and their murder of the Messiah. Think they're going to like that? No, they're not going to like it at all. Because we know what happens at the end. They are so angry, they can't see anything, but we have to kill this young man. And so they forget Roman law. They bypass Roman law, which said they couldn't execute anybody. And they take Stephen out and pound him to death with stones. Because they are so angry at what he is about to say to him. So let's begin to look at it. What you're going to see in the first eight verses, here's Stephen's defense. The first thing you're going to see is he's saying to them, you've forgotten a lot of things. And the first thing you've forgotten are your own roots as Jews. Let's read verse 1 through 8. The high priest said, are these things so, says to Stephen, are you a blasphemer of Moses, the temple, and the law, and God? Are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac. 
and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs, obviously the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob became Israel. So let's look at Stephen's opening statement back in verse 2. Brethren and fathers. So what you want to know, what I want you to notice first is he's saying, yes, brethren, I'm Jewish also. Hellenistic Jew, they've already, the church has handled that. This is the Sanhedrin. Yes, I'm Jewish. Yes. But also he says, fathers, I respect your position as sitting on the Sanhedrin in judgment of Jews. I respect the position. So he addresses them out of respect. Notice what he says. The God of glory. I don't want you to miss that. He opens. The very first thing he does is open with the glory of God. I want you to flip over for a second to verse 55. 55. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? Are we awake? Saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I get emotional every time I read it when we get to that that point. Kind of share some of that with you. He opens with, go back to verse 2, the glory of God. He dies seeing what? The glory of God. The chief end of man, has been said throughout history of the church, is to glorify God. The church exists to to manifest the glory of God. It's addressed in scripture as the Shekinah glory of God, this unapproachable light. That's why Jesus is called the light of the world. He gives light to every man coming into the world, on and on. So Stephen opens with the glory of God. In other words, he's saying, brethren and fathers, I too am Jewish. And I respect your position. But as Jews, we should understand, we exist to magnify the name of our God, Yahweh, Elohim. To let the world know who God really is. That's what it means to glorify, to give a correct estimate of what something is worth. Who is our God? You're accusing me, as we're going to see, of blaspheming our God. At the end of this, Stephen says, I'm going to say to you, you murdered him. You murdered our God, the Messiah, the one sent, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son of Man, which is a term from the Old Testament for Messiah from Daniel. You murdered the Messiah. So back to verse 2, the God of glory. The Shekinah in the temple. Israel, that's why it's so pathetic when you read their history, but to see the grace of God, the hand of God. Israel was the only nation, is the only nation, nation in the history of the human race to have the glory of God as part of their actual history. The Holy of Holies was illuminated by the glory of God. In the tabernacle and in the temple, Moses went on the mountain and saw the glory of God. The nation of Israel, that's part of their history, and that's what Stephen is going to recite for them. You've forgotten our roots. The God of glory is our God, the only God who is God. Remember he told Moses his name was what? I am. 
I know we joked about this before, but he was saying to Moses, you tell the Hebrews, my name is I am. And you can tell Pharaoh he ain't. I am God. There is no other. The first of the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You will have what? No other gods, plural, before me. They all had them. They were all polytheistic. All those cultures, they all had gods. God and and they looked at the God, the Romans still did. They looked at the God of the Jews just as another God. Those crazy Jews, they worship Yahweh, Jehovah. We worship Zeus, Jupiter, whoever. They worship their God. We, we, everybody's got gods. And if you, that, that's so relevant even today. You don't talk about it that way. But basically in our culture in the United States, because of more relativism, here's where we are. Whoever David's God is, that's cool. Whoever Mike's God is, that's cool. Whoever Darren's God is, that's cool. But don't say there's only one God. Well, the Bible says how many gods are there? There's only one. How many of them throughout history has proven himself to be God? Only one. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am. Before Abraham was, Jesus said to the Jews. Before Abraham was, I am. Your father Abraham looked forward to my day and rejoiced to see it. I am. That's the point of the Great Commission. We have to go into the world. God put us here for now. He had Stephen for that moment in time, history. He has us for now to go into the world and say to them, Let's debate. Let's dialogue in a loving way. Let's discuss. Who's your God? Let's talk about it. You don't believe there's a God? Let's talk about that. Let me tell you why I believe in the God of Scripture. Let me tell you why I believe Jesus is God. Not fight, not try to embarrass anyone, but lovingly share the gospel. Why? Because without Jesus Christ, they're doomed to eternity in hell, separated from God. You don't want anybody to go there. You love people. That's what being in Christ is all about. We do what we do because we care. No other reason. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are sent to make disciples of Christ. Not to say we did it, but because we love people. Stephen loved these guys. They're going to kill him. Again, we're going to see, just like Jesus, as they're killing him, what does Stephen say? Father, don't hold this charge against them. Who's that sound like? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen got it. Yes, he had to die. And Man, if I'd have been voting, I'd have said, no, no, no not take Stephen. Let's, let's take somebody else, not Stephen. But God had something bigger he was doing. So he says, you've forgotten. John chapter 1, the Bible says this. Jesus came to his own Jews, and his own did not receive him. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It means magnificence. Majesty, splendor, here's the deal, glory. God gave them the tabernacle and his glory was in 
the Holy of Holies. He gave him the temple. His glory was in the Holy of Holies. Then Jesus came, and God gave him glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ascended to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his church. And we get the incredible privilege of manifesting the glory of God because God now dwells where? Not in temples made with hands, but where? In you, in you, in you, in us. That's where God dwells. So we get the privilege of glorifying God, letting people know this is God, who God really is, not what you think. This is who he is. So verse 2, the richest title for God ever in Scripture Look at verse 2 again. He said, brethren and fathers, listen. Here's my defense. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. We're going to look at this part and then we're finished. Who was Abraham to a Jew? Who's Abraham today to a Jew? He's the father of their faith. He's the father of their nation. Abraham is the father of the three great religions that have ever been on the planet. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He's the father of all three. He's also the father of their nation. He's the progenitor of the entire group. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel, the 12 tribes, on and on. Isaac was the heir that God promised through whom he would bring the seed, the seed being Jesus Christ. Abraham's the dog. He's the top dog at the, at the top of the heap. So Stephen, great defense, starts out. You think the Holy Spirit might have been on Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit? He starts out, the God of glory. Our father Abraham loved God. Jesus said, Abraham, look forward to my days. We talked about a moment ago. John chapter 8, Jesus said these words. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. We mentioned it earlier. He saw it and he was glad. The Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? These were experts in the scriptures. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. Here's what Stephen was trying to reiterate to them. Abraham was saved not by works. The Bible makes it very clear in Genesis. I believe that's an Old Testament book. In Genesis, that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. Not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. That stuff was 400 something years later. Not by temple worship. And he didn't thought of yet by faith. Here's what God's wanting them to understand through Stephen. Man, you've forgotten where you came from. You've forgotten who Abraham was, what Abraham believed in. The Bible says Abraham believed God in Genesis and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. When you were born again, you were born again the exact same way. You believed God person of Jesus Christ you believed you trusted and it was imputed or charged to your account that you were righteous not really good declared positionally righteous in Christ and look up here and let's wrap this up and then we're going to share communion together here's the point Memphis is the buckle of the Bible belt I've lived here my whole life I was sharing this with a young man and standing in my driveway yesterday he came by my house ostensibly, not ostensibly, he did, uh, campaigning for governor, one of the guys running for governor. We ended up talking for 30 minutes about the Bible. Somehow I managed to do those kind of things. And it was a great conversation. Young man, mid-20s. I was impressed 
He was out in that heat going door to door. And I told him so. We talked about Memphis. He grew up in Memphis. I grew up in Memphis. Been here my whole life. Memphis is the buckle of Bible Belt. Everybody knows Bible stuff. Everybody knows things. But there's so much misunderstanding even in big churches about who the God of Scripture is, who Jesus really is, and what we're talking about. Everybody talks about where do you go to church? I heard someone say who moved here. The number one question I get from everybody I meet in Memphis is where do you go to church? Because there is one on every corner. Someone got more, more than one on the same corner. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is it comes down to truth. You could not be any more religious than the Pharisees. And they, Jesus said, you're going to hell. We need to let people know who Jesus is. And what will keep them out of hell. Not religion. Not going to church. Why do we go to church? Why are we involved? Why do we do what we do? Because we want to glorify God. And Jesus is God. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we stop as we get ready to share the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ. And we just simply thank you for Jesus. I, I think about so many people that I know, even the young man I ran into this morning. He knows more about the Bible than a lot of adults I know. But I don't think it matters to him. People I run into weekly, talk to weekly, just not important to him anymore. Lord, help us have an understanding, starting with me, starting with every individual who's born again, how important it is to love Jesus Christ with all my being and then to lovingly, lovingly, and I think that's the key, share him with other people, not in arrogance, not in fighting, not to win an argument, but because you care about people's souls, to lovingly share the person of Jesus Christ. And even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we would remember as Christians his blood, his body, and then go tell people about his blood, his body. You tell us to remember and then go proclaim his death till he comes. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.